Our scripture reading this morning is Joshua chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. That reading may be found in the Pew Bibles on page 192. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land laid subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritance, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south. The house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land, and write a description and return to me and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. Would you pray with me? Father, we've already been reminded this morning of the fact that you make us your sons and daughters and give us a glorious inheritance. Would you help us to see that afresh this morning? Be my helper as I preach. Be the helper of your people as they listen. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. A few months ago, I was going through some old files on my computer, you know, just looking at some old things, and I came across a very plain Word document from 2012 that contained this list. No colored stones, no stark silver, not flamboyant, but it can be ornate, lower setting, nothing that looks dangerous, talk to Catherine, talk to Jolyn, talk to Annetta, size six. Some of you are guessing what that list was for. It was based on conversations I had in 2012 with Emily. We were not married yet, we were dating, and with one of her friends about what kind of engagement ring I should buy for her. Now, I got to tell you, then and now, I don't care one bit about jewelry. The cut, the setting, none of it is interesting to me. Everything I learned in those few months about rings, I forgot very quickly. <laughs> but those details were very important to me. And of course, you know, you know why. 
I wanted to do the best I could with the ring. But that document also represented a glorious hope then and now a hope fulfilled that I would marry the girl that I loved. That this description would give way to a real ring and that real ring would give way to a real marriage. So that list remains precious to this day because of what it points to. Now our text this morning is a bit like that. It consists in large measure of descriptions, of detailed lists of ancient lands and cities and boundaries that may be more or less interesting to you in and of themselves, but they point to something that is precious for you, a promise kept, a promised hope that reaches beyond Joshua and Israel to give you confidence in your life even this morning. So I'm wondering if you're hopeful this morning, on this rainy Sunday morning. Do you feel a bit low, a bit lacking in assurance that God will give you what He's promised? Do you know what God has promised to you? This text can help you see it and strengthen you in it. So let's go together to Joshua chapter 13 and let's see every promised portion given. This morning, we're at a major turning point in the story of the book of Joshua. After watching Israel cross into the land of promise in the first five chapters, and then in chapters 6 through 12, we saw them conquer the land of promise. Last week, we saw Israel engage in two climactic battle campaigns in southern and then in northern Canaan. We ended in chapter 12 with a recap of all the kings defeated, going back to Moses and through Joshua. And that ended the portion of the book devoted to conquest. God has thoroughly defeated his enemies. The military campaign is over. What happens next is the apportioning of that conquered land, the giving of that land to the tribes and to individuals as an inheritance. Now, in our minds, the end of the conquest might mean the end of the interesting part of the book of Joshua. Let's just, let's just talk about the elephant in the room with this text this morning. If you've looked ahead at this text, you know this isn't the most action-packed section of Scripture. In fact, I would venture to guess that for those who read through the Bible consecutively, this is one of the least favored sections of the Old Testament. A lot of it consists of descriptions of boundaries, and, and they're described with a level of detail that one commentator I read this week called geographic overkill. <laughs> so... That may not be your favorite thing, but for the author, the writer of the book of Hebrews, the book of Joshua, this section is the very heart of the story. The whole of the conquest has been aimed at this very thing, getting God's people into God's land, and now it's really happening, and the reality of the fulfillment is savored down to the last drop. So we're, we're walking through nine chapters today. So, so buckle up, we're going to go fast, and we're going to fly high. So let's dive into the beginning of chapter 13, where God charges Joshua to give the promised land. Look at the first seven verses of Joshua 13. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. <laughs> and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites 
From the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and the Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrafoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribes of Manasseh. Now, the beginning of this section should sound to you a little bit like the beginning of the book. The beginning of the book, God charged Joshua to lead the people over the Jordan in conquest. Now, Joshua's old, and he's charged to, take, to, to finish taking possession of the conquered land. And the way the taking of possession will be finished is by allotting to the tribes of Israel their individual tribal inheritances. It will be finished as he gives them their inheritance. So the major military campaign is over, but God says, I will drive out the remaining peoples as individual tribes receive their lot from me. And this sets the stage for the following chapters as Joshua obeys this charge to fully give Israel the promised land according to God's command. Now note that he ends in verse 7 by saying, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And some of you may be thinking, aren't there 12 tribes in Israel? There are indeed 12 tribes. The author anticipates this question and reminds us of some history beginning in verse 8. Look at verse 8. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh and the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. So the author reminds us, or for some of you maybe tells you for the first time, that back in Numbers 32, after Moses had defeated two Canaanite kings, Sihon and Og, he gave some of that land back on the other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. So east of the Jordan, those two and a half tribes already have land apportioned. The rest of chapter 13 is devoted to outlining those apportionments that had already been made to assure us that those tribes have not been left out of the inheritance. So then beginning at chapter 14, the appointing by Joshua really gets rolling. Look at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 14. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. So here we're kind of given the parameters for apportioning the land. Selections are made by casting lots. That's, that's a random process, a little like throwing dice, except we know that the Lord of heaven and earth oversees all things, right? Proverbs tells us that the lot 
is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So when the land is allotted by lots, by casting lots, it's a way of entrusting the process to the Lord. There was no human partiality in this process. The covenant Lord is behind every decision. And our attention is also drawn in these first five verses of chapter 14 several times to this idea that things were done as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. That's in verse 2 and then again in verse 5. The point is that everything that's about to take place is coming from the Lord's promise and being fulfilled in obedience to the Lord's command. It's from the Lord. There's also in this section a refrain I want to point out to you that's already appeared back in chapter 13 and will appear several times throughout. We heard Lisa read it. The tribe of Levi does not receive a land allotment. This is not an oversight. It is by design. If you look back across the page in chapter 13, verse 33, you'll see this same refrain with a little bit more reasoning. Chapter 13, verse 33 says, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. So the Levites get the privilege of serving the Lord as priests for the people and receiving offerings from them for their labor. Their landless status was not second best. It was a great honor. And provision will be made for them. They'll be given cities and pasture lands for their flocks in due time. So now, with the history recapped and the instructions laid out, the apportioning begins in earnest. And interestingly, it begins not with a tribe, but with an individual. Look at verse 6 of chapter 14. Now the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Joshua, the son of Jephunneh, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, and Kedesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again, as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. So here we have Caleb, that old spy who with Joshua and a man from each tribe spied out the land of Canaan back in Numbers 13. And as he says here, only Caleb and Joshua didn't succumb to a faithless fear. So Moses promised them back then a portion in the very land he spied out. And he's coming to claim that inheritance. He's old now, but he's still strong, and he trusts in God to fulfill his promise. So he says, in essence, give me the mountain land with the giants in fortified castles. Joshua, his brother-in-arms, and the only other surviving member of the wilderness generation, blesses him and gives him Hebron. We learn in verse 15 that Hebron formerly belonged to the greatest of the Anakim, the giants, but not anymore. Now it belongs to a mighty man of Judah. 
And this story of Caleb's inheritance stands at the very beginning of this long inheritance list as one of many demonstrations of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise to certain individuals. But it also shows, Caleb also shows the faithful response to God's faithfulness. Hopeful labor. He says, God is giving us our inheritance? Good. I believe it. Give me the hardest place to possess. And as you can see, later in chapter 15, verses 13 to 18, that's exactly what he does. He takes possession. He drives the Anakim out of his land. And from there, we turn to the inheritance for the rest of Caleb's tribe, the tribe of Judah. Now, we didn't read through all of the inheritance of Gad or of Reuben or of the half-tribe of Manasseh. I'm not going to read through the entire inheritance for Judah either. But we are going to read some of it because I want you to get a sense of how these descriptions feel. They don't follow an exact pattern if you look at all the allotments, but typically there's an introduction of the tribe, a description of the boundaries of the land, and then sometimes there's also a list of cities within that land. So look at the beginning of chapter 15. We'll dive into a little bit of Judah's boundary markers. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the Salt Sea to the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary on the north side runs from the Bay of the Sea at the mouth of the Jordan. And the boundary goes up to the Beth Hoglah and passes along north of Beth Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Accor. And so northward, turning toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. And the boundary passes along to the waters of En Shemesh and ends at En Rogel. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is, Jerusalem. And the boundary goes up to the top of the mountain that lies over against the valley of Hinnom on the west at the northern end of the valley of the Rephaim. We'll stop right there. So note that this is an exacting list. It's giving precise boundaries down to the level of specific hills, specific springs of water. There's even a certain stone, the stone of Bohan. What seems to monotonous to us was precious to them. This was a description of their new home for them and for their children and for their children's children. And it was the realization of promises hundreds of years in coming. And it includes cities as well. There's a city list beginning at verse 20, given by region. Let me just give you a little flavor for it. Let's read at, at verse 20. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom were Kabzil, Eder, Jagur, Kina, Dimona, Adada, Kadesh, Hadzor, Ithnan, Zif, Telem, Bialot, Hadzor, Hadaata, Kiriot, Hezron, that is Hazor, and it goes on from there, on and on and on. So from Judah, Joshua then turns to the tribe of Joseph. Now Joseph's inheritance, it's a little complicated, is counted to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
The, the backstory comes from Genesis 48, where Jacob, who's later renamed Israel, he appoints Joseph's children, uh, Jacob's grandchildren, as sons and heirs alongside his other 11 sons. So Ephraim and Manasseh are sons of Joseph, but they receive individual inheritances as though they were two distinct tribes in Israel. Another potentially confusing detail is that Manasseh, if you'll remember, has already received half of their inheritance on the other side of the Jordan with Gad and Reuben. So what remains is to apportion all of Ephraim's inheritance and half of Manasseh's inheritance on the western side of the Jordan. So that's what happens. The territory for Ephraim is detailed in chapter 16, and in chapter 17, the half-tribe of Manasseh is given land. And in the midst of all that apportioning, there's another individual family that's given attention, just like Caleb. Look at verse 3 of chapter 17. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mahlah, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah, great names, Calvin and Grace, if you're looking for names. <laughs> they approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. So here's another story that has its roots back farther in the Bible, in Numbers 27, in which God commanded Moses to give an inheritance to the Zelophehad, even though he had no male heir. His daughters would receive the inheritance. Now, why are we given this story here, another individual story? Because, again, the long-anticipated command of the Lord from Moses is being fulfilled through Joshua. On a tribal level and on a family level, the inheritance is being given without fail. And at the same time that the text is overwhelmingly testifying that God is giving the land to his people, all three of these first three tribes fail to take possession of the land God had given them fully. You can see that at the end of chapter 15, the end of chapter 16, and the end of chapter 17. There were Canaanite peoples in those lands that they failed to drive out. And this seems to culminate at the end of chapter 17 when the tribes of Joseph come back to Joshua and they request more land. Look at chapter 17, verse 14. So Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribes from Joseph, they've gotten everything. This is what they say, verse 14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, "'Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people,' since all along the Lord has blessed me. So they say, we would like more land. And in response to their request for a bigger allotment, Joshua tells them to drive out the Perizzites and the Rephaim. He says, clear space for yourself in the forest. But the Ephraimites respond and say, no, those guys have chariots of iron. We, we don't want to do that. Now, this generation should have known better than to say anything like that, right? They saw God fight for them at Jericho. They watched God hurl hailstones down on their enemies. They saw him cause the sun and the moon to stand still. So Joshua replies in verse 17. Look at verse 17 of chapter 17. You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, 
and though they are strong. Joshua basically tells them, be strong and courageous. The Lord your God will be with you. He is fulfilling his promise to give you this land. We don't know what happens, but that ends the first major section of apportionment. It covers the lands east of the Jordan and some of the lands south and immediately west of the Jordan. And then there's a break. The apportioning stops briefly as the fulfillment takes another step forward. Read with me verse 1 of chapter 18. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. So they meet at Shiloh, they set up the tent of meeting. That's a reference to the tabernacle, the place where God's presence was manifested in the nation. It's moved to Shiloh in the territory of Ephraim, which is more central to the land. And it's a sign of what this text asserts, that the land is subdued before them. Even though there were inhabitants left to be driven out, the overarching situation is one of peace. Now, this might seem like a a very boring, ordinary logistical detail. They set up a tent. Okay. But it's actually another significant fulfillment. The worship of God and the whole sacrificial system outlined in detail in the book of Leviticus is now up and running in the land of promise. God is in the midst of his people. He's not marching before them to war anymore, but dwelling in their midst in peace. And it's from this place now, before the Lord, that the apportioning continues. This is the text we heard Lisa read a few moments ago. Joshua now charges the remaining seven tribes to take the land. He sends out a surveying group consisting of men from each tribe to look at the remaining territory, divide it into seven portions, and then bring them back to Joshua. And we see the conclusion in verses 9 to 10. Let's read those verses again. Chapter 18, verses 9 to 10. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by its towns in seven divisions, because there's seven tribes remaining. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, each to his portion. So with the worship of God established and the remaining land mapped out, the apportionment continues. And now it's at a much quicker pace in terms of the, the divisions of the book. So 18, chapter 18, verses 1 to, uh, 11 through 20, outlines the apportionment for Benjamin, between Judah in the south and Ephraim in the north. And they're given a list of cities as well. Next up is Simeon in chapter 19. Their inheritance is actually in the midst of Judah. So Judah had such a large inheritance, landmass-wise, that Simeon is given cities in their midst. Zebulon is given an inheritance in the north of the land, above Manasseh, as is Issachar, Asher along the sea, Naphtali, and at the end of chapter 19, Dan's inheritance is also outlined. It mentions quickly that Dan lost his territory and eventually conquered for themselves a territory not where they were originally assigned, but in the far north, which is why when you want to talk about the whole land of Israel, you talk about from Dan to Beersheba. Dan took a portion in the far north. So the allotment of the land, after going through the tribes, it ends with another individual, Joshua himself. Israel is the one doing the giving this time, not Joshua. They give to their leader land. But behind it all, we hear a familiar refrain in chapter 19, verse 50. Look at chapter 19, verse 50. 
By the command of the Lord, they gave him, that is Joshua, the city that he asked, Timnath Sirah in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. So once again, it's by the command of the Lord. The Lord himself is giving the land, fulfilling his promise through the obedience of Israel. And that concludes the apportioning of the land. It began with Caleb. It ended with Joshua. The faithful leaders of a previous generation and the faithful generation of conquerors, they have inherited the land of promise. And now the author turns to cities. There are certain cities that have to be designated. So look at chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge about which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. So God commands Joshua to appoint cities of refuge in the land. Again, this refers back to the law of Moses. This is a place where a man could flee who accidentally killed someone so that the family wouldn't come and avenge blood on the killer. So it was a place where he could flee, where his death could be justly evaluated and protection given. So six cities are designated that are spread out throughout the land so that no matter where you are within the tribal allotments, it's never more than a day's journey to one of these cities of refuge. Now, these were an essential component of Israel's justice system, of what God had given to Moses. So just as the setting up of the tent of meeting in Shiloh signaled kind of the establishment of worship in the land, the designation of these cities signals the establishment of Israel's legal system. It's the fulfillment of what had previously only been anticipated, what they had thought about and dreamed of for years in the wilderness. And now in chapter 21, the Levites request and receive their apportionment of cities and pasture lands to live in and to provide for their animals. They're given 48 cities, including the six cities of refuge in which they can dwell. And after the repeated refrain that the Lord is Levi's inheritance, we see how the Lord himself provides for their needs by designating places where they can live and where their animals can be fed. So now, every tribe is apportioned. The place of worship is established. The justice system is set up. The priests are established. And just in case we missed what all this means, it's spelled out in the concluding verses of chapter 21. Look at Chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Do you hear that repetition of all, every, all, every, all, every? The summary of this text and of the whole story up to this point is this. God kept 
every promise. Every plot of land was given. Every enemy was defeated. Every last check that God wrote for Israel, he cashed. Complete fulfillment of the promise. Now, what, what promise does the author have in mind here? What is he thinking of? What is the promise that God is fulfilling? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 12 when God called Abram to follow him. He told him that during his sojourn in Canaan that to your offspring I will give this land. That covenantal promise was reiterated to Isaac in Genesis 26 and to Jacob in Genesis 28. And it was in that hope that Jacob commanded his sons not to bury his bones in Egypt but to carry them up when they go back to Canaan. It is because God remembered that covenant promise that he told Moses from the burning bush in Exodus, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And when that Exodus generation is forbidden from entering the land because of unbelief in the book of Numbers, the land promise is still held out to them in the book of Deuteronomy. It has been the hope of that promise that this generation has fought faithfully. And now, every rock, every tree, every spring, every city, every pasture land has been given by the Lord. God has done it. Not one word of His ancient covenantal promise has slipped through His fingers. All have come to pass. He promised, He fought, He gave. To God be the glory, His people are home. They are at rest. That's why the author lingers here. This is not dull. This is the high watermark in God's unfolding plan. It's really happening. And yet this text speaks of more than the fulfillment experienced by Joshua and Israel in that day. It's a great fulfillment. It's a glorious fulfillment. But it points past itself to something greater, does it not? This generation led by Joshua was remarkably faithful. But as we saw already, there, there are indications that this faithfulness will not last. Some portions given will not be possessed. The pieces are already set for what will happen a generation later in the book of Judges. And this land, glorious as it is, the place where God dwells with His people and rules and administers justice, it's still not a return to Eden, is it? Where God walked with His people in the cool of the day. And as sweet as the rest is from conquest, the book of Hebrews tells us that even in Joshua's day, a greater rest was held out to the people of God. So this story presses us to gaze ahead at our Lord Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham, the fully faithful son. He is the one through whom God will graciously and thoroughly give his people an everlasting inheritance. Jesus keeps covenant with God perfectly and then he gives, he apportions, not some plot of land smaller than the state of Vermont. He gives them the whole universe not because we deserve it. You were disqualified from sharing in that eternal inheritance because of your sin. You were willingly in league with God's enemy 
Satan. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. You deserve to be driven out of God's presence like the peoples of Canaan, to be cast with Satan into outer darkness. And you must know that if you are an unbeliever here, that is still the path that you are headed on. If you've never come to Jesus in faith, if you've never let go of your sins, your inheritance is not a glorious one. Listen to what Revelation 21 says. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do you hear that? The portion, the inheritance for those who persist in their sins, who won't let go of them and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, is to be cast away from God forever in a lake of fire. So let go of your sins and grab hold of Jesus Christ by faith, the one who's greater than Joshua, who can qualify you, who can conquer for you, such that you enter into a glorious inheritance. That's what he's done for many of us in this room. Has he not, brothers and sisters? Jesus triumphed over his enemies by removing the sin record that disqualified you. Here's what God did for you through the greater Joshua. This is from Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Your sin debt, Christian, was nailed to the cross. That's because Jesus himself took upon you your sin debt. He bore your sins. The record of debt was put on him. So when he was nailed to the cross, your sins were nailed to the cross. That death that he cried out in agony, the full payment of sin was made such that your debt has been paid. And in so doing this, Satan was disarmed. Your enemy was defeated. No more basis from which to accuse you. To say that you're disqualified, he has been put to shame. And now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, not only are you freed from that condemnation, but through Jesus, the Father has, this is Colossians 1, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So through Christ's redemption, which we get by faith, you are qualified for the inheritance. Jesus has given you a blood-bought right to share in His own inheritance at His second coming in a new creation world. And I do mean a new world, a new earth, not just some cloudscape where we play perfectly tuned harps. I like harps as much as the next guy, probably more, but that's, <laughs> that's not what we're aiming at. He's giving us a renewed universe as tangible and touchable as the rocks and rivers of Israel's inheritance. Think of some of the happy features of your inheritance, brothers and sisters. It will be a place of perfect rest. No burdensome toil, no frustration. Oh, we will work and we will worship, but there will be no uselessness. There will be no futility. 
It will be devoid of suffering and decay the way our world is. It will be devoid of death. There will be no sickness. There will be no cancer. There will be no pandemics, no Alzheimer's, no strokes. It will be a world of love. No quarrels, no wars, no killings, no misunderstandings, no slights, no petty rivalries. Instead, we will be at peace with one another in a fellowship of love that will only ever increase as we rejoice with one another in our perpetual rejoicing. All of that is part of our very real, very tangible, very certain and thorough inheritance, brothers and sisters. But let's be clear that at the center of it all, the detail that makes this inheritance glorious finally is God himself. God will be there in a truer sense than for the priests of Joshua's day. God will be our inheritance. He gives us himself through Jesus Christ. The scripture gives us many beautiful portraits of that inheritance in the world to come, but maybe none is better than Revelation 22, 3 to 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is your inheritance, saints. You get God and every good thing with Him. And we know this is so, because as I already said, it was bought with Christ's blood. But also, we've already begun to receive it. You've already been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You've already received the down payment of that inheritance, namely, the Holy Spirit. He has begun already to roll back the power of sin in your life. And so we know this hope will not disappoint There will come a day prophesied by this text when we too will say not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made has failed. All will come to pass. And on that day, our Lord Jesus will apportion this inheritance to us personally. It is corporate. God gives to His whole bride the whole new creation. But the particularity of the apportionment in Joshua prophesies how Jesus will particularly give that same portion to each of us who comes to him in faith. Now, I don't know the details of how that's going to work. How's that going to play out? But it's clear from the Bible that it's not mechanical. Jesus is a real Savior, He's a real King, He's a real inheritor, and He will give His inheritance to His brothers and sisters. Not with less care than Joshua, but with more care than Joshua. He loved you and gave himself for you. And on that day, when all his enemies are subdued and our battle together is done, he will say to each of you, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. He will bid you to enter in to the joy of your master. Jesus told his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is preparing a place for you. In his Father's house, there's many rooms, there's plenty of space, an inheritance apportioned for you, where you will dwell with him forever. So I want to exhort you to grab hold of that hope, that real, tangible, thorough hope, personal hope, and wield it in your day-to-day life. Let the gospel hope of Joshua work down into your heart as you continue on the journey to the promised land. We're not there yet. We're still in conquest mode. But in hoping in this promise, you will be strengthened for that day in a myriad of ways. But let me speak of two. Hoping in that promise, in that day, will strengthen you to war against sin, and it will strengthen you to serve with generosity. So until that day of peace and rest, we must continue to drive out the sins that the Apostle Peter says wage war against our souls. That's 1 Peter 2, 11. And hoping in the promised land of Jesus strengthens you to fight that war. How? By providing you a more sure, more glorious promise than is offered by the sins that entice you. Sin always makes promises to us, does it not? Think of the power of pornography. When you are tempted to look at illicit images on your phone, on your tablet, or on your computer, think of what sexual lust is promising you in that moment. It is promising you that you will be happier for that momentary pleasure, for that momentary escape, for the control that it gives you. It entices you with a promise of satisfaction, of rest. And I'm saying you can fight that fire with fire, that false promise with a better one. The God who calls you to holiness has promised something better for those who hope in Him. Sin's pleasure is fleeting. Lust's pleasure is fleeting. And so is the pleasure of unforgiveness and the pleasure of gossip and the pleasure of impatience and in anger. Remind yourself in the moment of temptation that sin always overpromises and underdelivers. But not so our God. In an endless eternity of rest, you will never come close to even imagining that God has underdelivered on his promise. So cling to the purifying, strengthening hope that God will not fail to give you what he's promised as you wage war against sin. And hoping in this certain inheritance also strengthens you to serve with generosity, with confident generosity. Hope in the inheritance leads to generosity. If you believe that God is giving you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, if you believe that, it will free you from holding on to your resources here and now with clenched fists. Do you see that? If I know I'm getting everything in the age to come, I don't need to hold on to anything like this right now. Hope fuels generous service. And the reverse is true. Weak hope And the future inheritance produces weak, brittle service. Weak hope for then, weak service now. Because why would I be generous with my time, my money, my energy, with my focus, if I'm not sure how things are going to pan out? So is your life life marked by confident, generous service, or is it tentative? 
Is it, is it brittle because you haven't dug down deep into the hope of your inheritance? That's an interesting hypothetical question, but let's land it. What is your actual real reaction when a real someone in the church asks you to serve or to help them? What does your reaction in that moment say about your hope? Now, that question is a rebuke to me because I'm not, I'm not naturally a hopeful guy. I'm not a glass half full kind of guy. I'm a glass half empty and it's cracked and if you had listened to me, it wouldn't have been this way. Yeah. And I take it that some of you are too. Hope is not your native go-to gear. And leaky hope leads to leaky service. So let's, let's repent together of that faithlessness. Let's turn our backs on that kind of faithlessness. And instead, let's dig into hope like Calebites in the upcoming year. Not this Caleb, who's glass half empty, but the Caleb from Judah, who believed God's promises and asked for the hill country with the fortified giant cities. Last week, Pastor Eric in his sermon called us to lean in with all our might, to give our sword to the work of gospel proclamation in this ministry year. And this Past Thursday, Pastor Mitch, in his email, encouraged us with a vision for what that year might bring. He wrote this, Who will the Lord use our gospel proclamation to conquer and save this year? Who are those who right now are God's enemies, who will be made His friends by means of the message of Christ's death and resurrection, heralded at our church services and in our various ministries? Let's pray that there will be many the Lord takes from the enemy's camp through salvation in Jesus Christ this year. To that I say, amen. And if we are to labor in this upcoming year so that the gospel is proclaimed faithfully in our services and in our nurseries and in Awana and in youth group and in community groups and in investigative Bible studies and in mom connections and in our neighborhoods and in lots of other ways, it will happen through generous service rooted in the hope of our inheritance. All God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Not one promise will fail. All will come to pass. Every promised portion will be given. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we ask that you would help us to see how firm a foundation is laid for our faith in your excellent word, Father. Help us to see that there's no more you could say. You've given us so clearly through this prophecy, through what you've done, through your son, through what you've already given us by your spirit. Every word will prove true. Help us to believe it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.